Well, in just a few moments, we are going to witness the baptism of three members of our covenant community. And this will be a holy moment as it signifies and seals their engrafting into Christ and his covenant. In baptism, they are set apart from the world as God's chosen people, and God places his name upon them. Through baptism, they are renamed Christians. This is why sometimes baptism is called christening, because they are taking on the name of Christ himself. And in this holy act, we will all be tempted, perhaps, in one way or another, to think too much of the wrong things as we come to baptism. Maybe to, to lay too much emphasis or too little emphasis in the wrong places. We might be thinking that this baptism is an act of God performed for the sake of these three recipients that we will baptize in a moment, as is often the view in baptism, as we're thinking a lot about how they have walked their way to Christ and the, the, the baptism almost becomes the crown of their achievement. Look what they have done. But our text this morning is a stark reminder that when the Lord acts, he does so for the sake of his holy name. The name that we all profane every time we act contrary to the way that we were created, which is in the image of God. Every sin, every slip of the tongue, every maverick thought is a profanation of his holy name. A name that he is jealous after, the scriptures tell us. God is jealous after his name. And because of our profanity, we have often failed in making our appeal to the nations to be reconciled to God. They look at us and we blow it every time, it seems. We have turned inward towards ourselves rather than turning outward towards others in love. That's why we hear all the time that the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And often it's very true, isn't it? We are sinners. We find ourselves often profaning the name of the Lord. And what I hope to show you this morning is that when God acts, as we look at the, this text this morning, I want you to see that when God acts, he does so for the vindication of his holiness holiness of his great name as an appeal to the nations that they will know that he is the Lord. So God acts so that the nations might know that God is God. And it is through us that God makes his appeal, and he does so even in baptism. So we're going to read this morning Ezekiel 36, verses 16 through 37. These are the words of God, church. Let's give attention to them this morning. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanliness of a woman and her minstrel impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed and the land for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through their countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when I came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you 
I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let, be, that, let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded of your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and the desolate and the ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that, that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase the people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord, the word of God for his people. Let us pray. Father, we are privileged this morning to have you speaking to us. As we have read from your word, we ask that the same Holy Spirit that inspired the text to be handed down through the ages, preserved for us, and now read in your church, I pray that that same Holy Spirit that brought the word to us would resonate with the spirit that resides inside of us who are Christians. Help us to see rightly your word. Give us eyes to see that we might understand. Give us ears to hear that we might hear the good news of Jesus and what he has done for us. Would I pray that you would speak to us this morning clearly in your word. I pray that as my stammering tongue will definitely mess things up as I preach, as I say things wrong, Lord, I pray that through the foolishness of preaching, you would be powerful among us. I pray that you would use even me to be able to bring your word this morning. And if there's anything that I say that is not of you, I pray that it would go in one ear, right out the other. We want you to speak to us this morning from your word. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, I hope as we were reading this passage from Ezekiel this morning, you were able to connect the New Covenant themes that we've been studying this year. For those of you who are regulars to Village, you know that we've been studying the covenants and how all through the Old Testament we see this beautiful line of the covenants connecting all the way to Jesus Christ who comes to bring the New Covenant. And as we read in this text and as we've been looking before, we see things like building, planting, 
Okay, this is something we should experience in the new covenant. Renewal, sowing the land with man and beast, a return to the, even the Edenic state of blessing, but in an even greater and better arrangement. This passage that we just read from Ezekiel is rich in themes of new creation reality that comes with the new covenant. But for our purposes today, I would like to focus our attention on how it relates to us specifically in this very service at Village Church in 2024. How does this passage in Ezekiel speak to us today is what we should be asking. Well, the immediate context was set in Israel's exile. This is ages ago, thousands of years ago. They were longing for the day when God would act to do these things. They were looking forward. But we, as the New Covenant community, were looking backwards to how Christ has already acted. What they saw in a world dimly lit and cast in shadows, we now see in the radiance of Christ. We see passages like at the end of that where it's saying that the, 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 the people of God would be like a flock for sacrifices, coming to gather at the festivals, at the appointed feasts, where thousands would come and to, to know the Lord. I think of things like Acts 2 at the very beginning of the church where thousands are baptized, where, where they're all gathered to like this, where there's thousands of people like the flock of the beast for sacrifices. So we see now in a different kind of light than they did. When Ezekiel was longing for this, they didn't taste what we now, in a real way, as new covenant believers, are able to taste of the Lord and see that he is good. We see in verse 25 that God would sprinkle clean water on his people and cleanse them from their uncleanliness. And we know that the substance of that cleaning is found in the blood of Jesus. We've already sang about this, right? And it's symbolized for us in baptism. With a true heart and full assurance of faith, we draw near to Christ with our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil or from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's Hebrews. Hebrews tells us that. That's what was our call to worship this morning. We're reminded of these things as we read from Ezekiel. So our task this morning is to contextualize this prophetic message in Ezekiel and ask how it applies to us today. And as it turns out, the human heart has a lot of common threads of sin that are yet to be eradicated. Sinners are still sinners, right? We, we still fall into the same kind of sins. Though we now walk in the reality of the new covenant, we still battle sin, or at least I do. I think that we all can say that, right? We, we are sinners. We've confessed that this morning. We too profane the name of the Lord as Israel was prone to do. But what does this look like now? Okay. What does it look like now? How have we profaned the name of the Lord? And how, does, or how has God acted in spite of our profanity of his name even today? How does he remain faithful to his promise to act to vindicate his holy name even today? Let us first probe our hearts and ask how we might, even as villagers, even as 2024 Christians, ask how we might profane the name of the Lord now. Let's start by looking at verse 17. And 18. Verse 17 and 18 says this, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. By their ways and their deeds. So what they're doing, their actions are profaning the name of the Lord. Their ways before me were like the uncleanliness of a woman and her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for their idols which with they had defiled it. Now, the uncleanliness of a woman in her menstrual period is a disturbing image, right? We, this, but this is what the scriptures tell us. We shouldn't shield our eyes this morning and say, no, I don't want to look at that, because this is actually something that God is using in his rhetoric to get our attention. He's showing us something. The point of this obscene verse is to place a stark contrast 
a stark divide between the holiness of God and our uncleanliness. The image should strike us as it gives us the picture of a woman acting recklessly in her uncleanliness, unconcerned with where her ritual impurity might take her. The point is not, and I want you to hear this clearly, the point is not that the woman is inherently sinful because of her menstrual cycle. That's not what this is saying. It's that she has no regard for the sacred. Okay? She, she profanes the sacred by her unabashedness of her impurity. She has lost her ability to blush over her indecency. She deems the sacred and the sacred as sacred as indifferently equal. She can do whatever she would want to do, and her menstrual period makes no difference to her. She's taking that anywhere and everywhere. And in the Old Testament, this was a sign of uncleanliness. And she says, that doesn't matter. I will take that wherever. There is no difference in her mind. And it is my contention that we, the New Testament church, are often the woman who profanes the name of God with our flippancy with the things of God. The word holy is something that we have almost dropped altogether from our Christian vocabulary. Don't you think about that? We don't call them holy Bibles anymore. We just call them Bibles. Please open your Bible apps this morning to whatever. Just another point of technology. Your Bible apps, it's right next to your Facebook app. We don't call it Holy Communion anymore. It's just communion. We don't call it Holy Baptism anymore. It's just baptism. We go on about our lives treating everything as equally disenchanted, as equally unholy. We do not set apart all that we encounter with the Word of God in prayer, as it says in 1 Timothy 4 5. Rather, we slavishly go about our lives in an old hat kind of way, just living life in the ordinary. And not only does this happen at home, it happens at work, it happens at school, all of which places should be filled with wonder and awe, excited about what God is doing, how his holiness just shows up and changes the experience of those things, but we also even do it in the church with the things of God, where they can grow very ordinary, very unholy, we do not consecrate ourselves in preparation for worship. We, we come in here in our shoes, tracking all kinds of proverbial mud into the pews. And I'm not saying that we need to come to church perfect. But there is a sense in which we aren't recognizing that when we are coming into church, we are coming into the presence of God. Our hands stain our hymnals with the blood of family members as, as we have grown angry in our hearts with them, even on the way to church. Right? We're bickering and fighting on the way to church. And Jesus tells us that even if you're angry with someone, that you have murdered them in your heart. And here we come, and with our lips, we're uttering blessing to God while we have just cursed our neighbors or maybe even our family members on the way to church. We've allowed our hearts to get a little bit distanced from what we are actually doing here in God's presence. And as we come together for worship with this disheartened demeanor, it keeps our minds out of heaven. It really trips us up as we're coming to worship. We say lift up our hearts, but immediately we kind of look at the ceiling and not beyond it. We say, well, yeah, there's a ceiling there. My heart went nowhere. I said it, but nothing really actually happened. Right? We see the bread and the wine as we come to communion, but we see no further to the Savior, where Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. We observe a baptism, but think, what good would a little water sprinkle do? What good is that? It's just water, after all. In jealous anger, God looks at this profanity and says, What a mess you've made of my name. These things are holy 
the Lord has says. You, you are supposed to be the glory of my name to the nations, but you have become the laughingstock among the nations. We drag God's name through the mud, and that is precisely why he promises that. Read with me in verse 21. It says, But, but I had concern for my holy name, which the, the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. I had concern for my holy name. Then we see the real reason God promises to act in verse 23 and 24. And what an important point that is as we come to the subject of baptism. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So God is going to act in order to prove, to, to make a declaration, to make it known that he is Lord of the nations, despite the sins of his people. In other words, this declaration isn't because the people have been good little boys and girls. God's not acting for their sake because they've been so good and so righteous and have earned all of this. Though they confess his name with their lips, their hearts were far from him. And that is why he says, I'm going to act. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to vindicate my holy name, God says. And he says in verse 25 through 29, when this act is, he's going to tell us when he's going to do it. He says, he will sprinkle clean water on them to cleanse them. He will give them a new heart, place a new spirit within them, and cause them to walk in obedience. So he's kind of, you get this image of him changing the scenario, right? They've profaned his name, and he says, I'm going to act. I'm going to vindicate my name. I'm going to take them. I'm going to clean them up. I'm going to set them on the right path. I'm going to get them a new heart. I'm going to cause them to obey. This is what he says. This is obviously a prophecy about the new covenant. But even more pointedly, this is an allusion to baptism, which is the sign and seal of the new covenant in Jesus. This prophecy points to that new covenant that identifies with uh, identifies us with Jesus himself, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That place in history, that human history, where God acted to vindicate his holiness despite our profanity, leading all the way to the cross. That place where his blood was shed, where we might find true, real, effectual cleansing. Baptism is that holy act of God where the Spirit is promised to descend on us, just like it descended on Jesus in the form of a dove, where His blood promises to cleanse us with the washing of regeneration to give us a new heart of flesh that is able to obey and actually do the things that He's called us to do. It points to all of that. But let us not forget God's intention in this holy act. He goes on to say in verse 31, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded of your ways, O house of Israel. In other words, God does not baptize to remind us of our good intention to follow him. He, he doesn't baptize us because we've been so good. He's saying, it's not that. 
I'm not acting for your sake. I'm not acting because you've earned your way to this. I'm acting because of my holiness, and I'm going to vindicate my holy name. In other words, baptism is an act of grace. Faith not of works, lest any man should boast. Rather, baptism serves as the great reminder of God's faithfulness to us, despite our evil ways and deeds that are not good, is what the text tells us. It moves our heart to confession of our iniquity and our profane abominations of his holy name. For we confessed and were renewed. A new heart, he says, he will give to us. For we can actually obey and do the things that he calls us to. The profanity that we often bring to baptism is that we think it's mostly about us and what we have to say about God, not about God and what he has to say about us. We place great emphasis on our belief that baptism does not save. If you've ever seen a Protestant baptism, you would think that the whole point of the baptism is that God does nothing. Right? The, the pastors go to great pains to say baptism doesn't save. Yet there's the biblical passages that say baptism, which corresponds to the flood, now saves you. Now, I'm not saying that baptism automatically saves you. Don't hear me wrong. But I'm trying to, to re-enliven your eyes and your hearts, your minds, to realize that when we baptize a child, that this is God is acting. that's acting. It's a holy moment for us. We'll say things like water can't change the heart, and it can't. But yet God uses means to his ends, like water. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and they will be clean, is what it says. So we place nearly all our emphasis on the earthly aspects of the sacrament to the point of deflating it into nothing but a bare memorial. We're just thinking about how God might do something, not believing what God will do in his promise. It's no longer holy baptism. It's just plain old baptism. The problem is, is that we are way too down to earth and not nearly heavenly-minded about our lives, but especially the things of God. The scriptures tell us to have our minds set on things above. Our citizenship is in heaven, so we, we really do need to be more heavenly-minded about things. We see Ezekiel's valley of dry bones in the next chapter. We, we read six, uh, 36 here about the, the new covenant, and then we read in verse or chapter 37 the valley of dry bones, but when we look at it in such worldly eyes and not having a heavenly vision, what we see is just a valley of dry bones, and nothing else. Deadness. No flesh, no sinews miraculously wrapping around the bones and raising them in the resurrection power of God. That's what actually happens when Ezekiel looks at it with a heavenly vision. And that's what I'm calling us this morning to look at this with, this heavenly-mindedness, holy-mindedness. The point I'm trying to stir your hearts towards this morning is that when we observe a baptism, we are watching a sacred act of God. This is not something that a man can do. This is something that God does. And the power within is not the water. It's not the, the pastor. It's not anyone that is doing anything. It is in God himself. God is acting in baptism. So the worst thing that we can do as we observe this baptism this morning is to think that it's all about the recipients for their sake, something that they have done. Rather, it's about God doing something through them. We need to pay special attention to the precision of God's wording this morning. Verse 23 gives us the language of through, which is in contrast to the language of for. Okay? And the nations will know that I am the Lord. How? Declares the Lord God. When through you, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Think about how that process works. Through you, so through the people that are being sprinkled with clean water, God will vindicate his holiness before the, the, the eyes of the nations to where they might see that he is the Lord. 
Again, I think of Acts 2. What a beautiful testament that was. How their eyes were opened. What shall we do? Be baptized. So in baptism, we as the recipients, insofar as we receive all the blessings of God, despite our iniquities, become God's appeal to the nations. They see our rank iniquity, but are confounded by God's blessing of us despite our sin. They will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Think about that imagery. How it comes full circle where we fell from Eden and touch a, such a low point. He says, the desolation that you were in, that's going to be changed. The desert period, the exile, that's going to change. You're going to become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and the desolate and the ruined cities are now fortified, inhabited, rebuilt. And then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. I will do it. That's an amazing promise. That's not just a fact. That's a promise to you that we can look at. When we look to baptism, God's promising these kinds of things. And realize, too, that this promise is picked up by Jesus in the New Testament. It doesn't stay stale and old in the Old Testament and the New never mentions it again. Rather, it carries on all the way into the New Covenant. What does he tell his disciples as he stands to them as they are being told to be God's appeal on earth before he ascends into heaven? The Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? It says in Matthew 28, 18-20, All authority, this is Jesus speaking, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Christ says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All the nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, Jesus is the one who acts to vindicate his holiness. Jesus is the one that God uses to reveal his holy name. Isaiah even identifies him for us when he says in Isaiah 52 and another prophecy, Behold, my servant shall act. He shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond the human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told of them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So Isaiah gives us this beautiful picture in Isaiah 52 of Jesus who comes, the, the servant of the Lord who's acting on behalf of God, and he shall sprinkle the nations as the king of the nations, the one who all the kings of the earth have their mouths shut because of him and his kingship, his lordship over all of creation. It's not just that God providentially acts in nature and the things that happen in creation. It's not just that he acts uh, through the law and the prophets, through scripture, the church. He precisely, God precisely acts through Jesus Christ as he hallows the waters of baptism when he claims Jesus as his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. He sends the spirit upon him in the form of a dove and acts to vindicate the holiness of his name among the nations as he loved the world, the nations, even unto death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And now that 
Jesus has done this, now that Jesus has been baptized, now that he's enchanted, made holy, consecrated, and sanctified the waters of baptism by his blood, we too may be baptized in his name. We're given a new name in baptism. For this is the very reason why our baptismal formula is in the name of Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, we are rebuilt into the church. We are re-inhabited by the Holy Spirit. We are replanted as the seed of God, renewed as the new creation, restored like Eden, and renamed Christian. Not for our sakes, but for the vindication of his holy name. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have acted, not for our sakes, but for the vindication of your holy name. We thank you that you make your appeal through us to the nations. Lord, we thank you that even though we have profaned your name, our iniquities have been shown to the world and might even have at some points be uh, a mockery to the world. But we thank you that you've remained faithful to us, that you do not depart from us, that you do not leave us abandoned in our desolation. You do not leave us in our iniquities, but you come to us, you act in the name of Jesus to come and cleanse us from all iniquity. You are the one that washes us clean, that takes our heart of stone, a heart of unbelief, and changes that heart into a heart of flesh, a heart that beats for you. We thank you, Lord, that you teach us obedience. You don't even leave us in our sin. You teach us a new way. You give us a, a new burden. We have the burden of Jesus that is a lighter burden, that is different than before, where we're not living under the, the yoke of the law, but we're living under the the, the light burden of Jesus Christ himself who helps us to obey. We thank you that you promise even the Holy Spirit in baptism, that just as the Spirit came and descended on you like a dove, that we too might be baptized in that same name, renamed and have the same thing said about us, that not because of our sakes we're told that we are beloved of the Lord, but because of Jesus Christ himself and his holy name, we too can have that same identity of righteousness, that he who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Cut our hearts this morning, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has heard the word of the Lord, this gospel of Jesus Christ that reminds us that we are sinners, that we are in need of grace, that we are unclean, unholy, and yet you come to us and you act on behalf of us, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, in a moment we are going to baptize at least three of our people here. But Lord, I'm reminded of even the early church in Acts 2, when the onlookers heard these things and they said, what shall we do? And the instruction, the apostolic word to them was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Lord, if that impresses upon the heart of anyone else here this morning, I pray that you would call them to yourself, that you would baptize them in your name, giving them a new identity, a new name, the name of Christ. We ask these things in his holy name. Amen. Well, we come now to the sacrament of baptism, and I'm going to hand this over to Reverend Nick Ashley. I've yet to introduce him. He is the moderator of our session. He has come to help us with this baptism today, and we are grateful to have him be a part of this and this glorious holy day. I'd ask also for the baptismal candidates, recipients, to come forward as we gather together.
for this sacrament of baptism. Well, I thank you all.